0: Today we are starting a new sermon series, um, and so today is all about introduction as we begin this sermon series, I wanna, but I want to state my intention and hope in doing this series because it's a bit different than what we typically do here on a, a normal Sunday morning. So generally we're going to preach through books of the Bible. And that's, that's what we generally will do. Uh, and we will be preaching selected parts of the Bible throughout this series. But we're going to be jumping between the Old and the New Testament uh, to try and accomplish our purpose in this series. So one thing that I feel called to as a pastor is helping those that I have the privilege of, of leading spiritually is to read the Bible. So I want to help you read the Bible. So I'm, I'm not so naive to think that we all sit down every day for 30 minutes and have this blissful experience where the words of the Bible speak exactly to our situation and meet all of our needs. I know many of us find the Bible confusing. In the few times that we do sit down to read it, there may be kids screaming or thoughts about the to-do lists that keep disrupting Our focus. And then when we actually do read the Bible, we might find ourselves discouraged because we hear all the things that we're supposed to be doing and we're not hitting the mark, and so we maybe feel like failures. So, a primary reason for this sermon series is to help us read our Bibles correctly. So I think a lot of the times our discouragement, our confusion is because we, we don't read our Bibles in the right way. And so my hope is that as we learn, maybe take baby steps in this series, and we learn how to read the Bible in greater ways, that it would come alive for us in new ways. That, that it wouldn't just be this stale book, but it would be something that comes alive for us. For many years, I thought the Bible was this confusing mix of disconnected stories. It began with God creating all things, but then it told of God's people, the the formation of a nation, of Israel, and then how they were really disobedient. And then there were these crazy prophets who spoke to God's people and tried to get them back into line. And then there were some sayings on how to make God happy combined with some depictions of God as angry and volatile. And a really long book known as Psalms. It's a bunch of weird songs and a whole bunch of cultural contexts that really made no sense to me. The New Testament was a bit more readable as it had some instructions I could just directly apply to my life. And so all of this came together to make the Bible something that I wasn't excited to read. It was confusing for me. But then I got some help in how to read the Bible. And I was taught that the Bible was one big story. That all these different books, that they were going in the same direction. That they were telling the same story from different vantage points. And that this one story was ultimately about one person. All of those parts of the Old Testament that seemed to make no sense to me were actually about Jesus. And he was there. And it blew my mind. And the Bible began to come alive for me in some really profound ways. And that's true even still today. The Bible is exciting for me. To read it, to see how God put this book together in ways that I could never have imagined, to find Jesus in places where I never thought to look for him before. So the title of our ser- series is Law and Grace, and, and you might wonder, well, how in the world does that relate to reading the Bible? And so that's what I want to do this morning is try and set up this series to provide an introduction for us as we venture into how we can read the Bible in a way that hopefully will make it come alive for us. So I want to begin this morning by ensuring an understanding of what I mean by law. This is a, could be a confusing word for some of us based on our experiences if we grew up in the church. So some people refer to the law when they're thinking about the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're known as the Torah, which means law. Okay, So many people will think of the law meaning those first five books. But within those first five books, the Jewish people identified 613 individual specific laws and so other people will think well that's what's referred to as the law all of these 613 laws so i've got both these things in mind but another reference of the law is to the ten commandments so this is kind of the summary what what we would say is the summary of god's law so boil all those 613 down boil down the first five books of the Bible. Of God's instructions to his people, the Ten Commandments are the law. So when I'm talking about the law in this series, I've got all of this in sight. But I find it oftentimes beneficial for us to think, if, if we're trying to think simplistically, think Ten Commandments. But, but I'm thinking of all of these Various parts of of what the law could be now The question then that maybe pops up for us is if we're thinking about 613 laws, right? Like what is the point? What is the point of? 613 laws what was god's intention in giving because these came from god So what was his intention in giving all of these laws to his people? So this question has a couple of answers more than what I'll answer today, but I want to I focus in on two of them this morning. So first of all, the Bible is clear that God desires good for His creation. He wants His people to be blessed. So, so everything that God does has that and good. His design, His desire for His people is that they would experience His goodness, His blessing in everything that He does. And so we would say through the law that God wants His people to know His goodness. Deuteronomy 28 says, If you obey, you will be blessed. So we've got to to grasp that God's design was for Israel's flourishing in giving the law. If you obey these laws, you will be blessed by God. So God desired Israel's good. God desires our good as well today. However, all of this takes a turn that may be a bit surprising for us. Because Deuteronomy 28 goes on and it says, if you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey... You will be cursed. So, what was known about Israel prior to these commands, and what became abundantly clear in the many years, decades, generations that followed, is the fact that they were experts at disobeying. They were a people who were cursed in many ways. And we see the implications of the curse in the life of Israel. Evil leaders that are leading them. The splitting of their nation into two separate entities. Being exiled from the land of goodness that God brought them into and he wanted to give them all these good things. Them then being exiled, being pushed out of that land because of their disobedience. And then when you get to the end of the Old Testament, There's a couple hundred years of silence where God's not interacting with his people, at least in terms of what's being written. And so we also hear or don't hear from God. It's this silence from God as well. All of this together is indicative of this reality that they're a cursed nation because they disobeyed God's law. So what exactly then... Is the point? If God gave them the law for their good, because He wanted them to be blessed, what's the point? What's the intention as we go through all of this? And the intention is to convince Israel, and we would say us today as well, to convince humanity that they and we are cursed by sin and we are in need of a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. So the point of the law was to highlight their and our inability to keep it. Our need for something outside of ourselves. The fact that we cannot save ourselves. And this is what the law is really good at exposing Galatians 3.24 says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Other translations will um, interpret this word guardian as tutor. The law was our tutor. The law was our teacher. So the law is our teacher. It exposes our need, our inability to keep the law, and then it points us to the solution who is Jesus so so this is vitally important for us to understand and to remember especially as we think about reading the Bible so as we read the Bible then we've got to understand the right purpose of the law 1st Timothy 1 8 says now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully okay so the inverse of this then is the law is not good if one uses it in a, an unlawful manner. Okay? So the law is good. The law is holy. We read this in other parts of the Bible. But there is a specific, distinct usage of the law. And so we've got to be real precise about this. It is used to expose sin. It is used to then point us to Jesus. But as in all of life. So so that's how the law is good, but as in all of life, a good thing can become a bad thing when used improperly. And when the law is used improperly, things go really bad. Really bad. So it's important or it's imperative that we exercise some caution here because the New Testament has some really strong things to say about the law. So what I want to do here over the next number of minutes is just talk about some of the things that the New Testament says about the law. Before I do that, though, I want to go to 2 Corinthians 3, because there it talks about two covenants. So I just want to define here what a covenant is. A covenant is a relational agreement in which God sets the terms. Okay? Okay. So God is initiating this agreement. God then is the one who is ensuring that the covenant is going to be kept. Now, there may or may not be obligations for those God makes the agreement with. But God ultimately ensures the promises in the agreement are kept. Okay, And if something is broken on the other side of the agreement then God is going to resolve it. He's going to make sure that his promises are kept. So there's no negotiation in a covenant. God makes it. God keeps it. And in 2 Corinthians 3, it's talking in that chapter about two covenants. Okay? So the Bible is also constructed in this way. It's built around this reality that there are two covenants. You've got the Old Covenant, Old Testament, which is what God made with his people. And he called them to obey his commands and to then receive his blessing. But if they disobeyed, then they would be cursed. This covenant involved a reliance upon human works. And this covenant turned bad for humanity because of their sinfulness their inability to do what God had called them to do, to hold up their end of the conditions. So God, as was his plan, then made a new covenant. And this was a covenant of grace that was based not on our works, but on Jesus' works for us. So when God made the new covenant, it simultaneously did away with the Old Covenant. So we've got to understand that there's distinction here. There's discontinuity between the First Covenant and the Second Covenant. Since Israel was unable to fulfill their covenant obligations, Jesus came to earth and he did it for them. Matthew 5 states this. This is why Jesus came. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to do what we cannot do in and of ourselves. So Jesus came to fulfill the law, the law that we broke. It also says here that Jesus didn't just come to abolish a law, the law. It still had a purpose in pointing people to Jesus, okay? But this is uh, pertaining to salvation and to blessing. Okay, so when we think about salvation and blessing, the law that Jesus came to fulfill has become obsolete. Okay, this is what Hebrews 8 tells us. So in speaking of a new covenant, so in Jesus coming to fulfill the old covenant and usher in a new, he is making the old one obsolete. That's really strong language. He's making that old covenant obsolete. Okay, so we've got to understand there's discontinuity here. Old covenant, new covenant. Jesus comes to fulfill the old, ushers in the new. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 3 and what it says about the law. In verse 6, it says the law kills. In verse 7, it says that the law is the ministry of, of death. In verse 9, it calls it the ministry of condemnation. In verse 10, it says the law possesses no glory at all. Are you drawn to this at all? I don't, I don't think any reasonable person would be drawn to that. And, and then in the midst of this chapter, what we find is that it's highlighting how Jesus brings life. How Jesus brings glory, how Jesus brings hope, and is the strong contrast to what the law is. A couple other places in the New Testament. Romans 4.15 says that the law brings wrath. No one's going to sign up for that, right? Galatians 4.25 speaks about how the law enslaves people. Romans 7.5 talks about how the law arouses sinful passions. And Romans 7 then goes on to speak about how it is good to be released from the law. That true freedom is found not in the law, not in observing the law, but in moving on from the law. Moving into what Jesus has brought. Okay. Maybe that's super boring for you. What, what I hope you can understand from what I'm pointing to here in the New Testament is that there is a specific good use of the law. There is. But furthermore, and moreover, I hope we can acknowledge the inherent dangers in leaning on the law, in trying to do what only Jesus could do, trying to fulfill what Jesus has already fulfilled for us. The law is done away with. It has become obsolete. So my hope in in trying to set this up this way is I'll give you one practical example for this. And this involves the end of life. So growing up in a church, Growing up as the son of a pastor, I've been around plenty of people that have come to the end of their lives and found themselves filled with fear. So, part of me even wanting to preach a sermon series like this is to help you fight against this. I've heard too many people say things like, I haven't been good enough, I should have done more. Some of you maybe have experienced this with parents or grandparents or other relatives. What a damning punch to the gut. To get to the end of your life, to be a consistent churchgoer, and then to be overwhelmed with fear, uncertainty. I want to fight against this. This is why we preach why we're preaching this sermon series, but I would say why we preach the way that we do every single week here. We want to drive you to Jesus, we want to get you to Him. To Him, He is good news. We want to move you beyond the law because Jesus is the only one who has been good enough. People get to the end of their lives and they feel this way because they have listened to the law being preached to them year after year. They've heard, do better. They've heard, work harder. They've heard, you owe Jesus. They've heard, here are three steps to make you a better Christian. And all of that sets us up for desperation. All of that sets us up for uncertainty. The reality is we can't do enough. Only Jesus can do enough. You see, if salvation, if the Christian life is about you being good enough, the measuring stick is subjective. It's always moving. Once you do what you thought was enough, you realize there's another hill to climb. You will never measure up. You won't. This is why our sermon series slide is as it is. Why the ampersand is part of the law. Because there's always another and with the law. Always something more that you need to do. And in that, the law is going to create fear. If you're living the Christian life trying to obey the law you will be filled with fear. Maybe you can disguise it for a while, but you'll come to the end of your life, and it's going to come rushing in at you. And this is why so many people have also walked away from Jesus' church, just because they were given a heavy dose of law. There is no good news in law. There is no good news in hearing Do better That's the yoke Jesus came to take upon himself Even think about parenting situations This is what creates separation in so many parent-child relationships Because we want our kids to obey us as parents And so we say here's the rule Obey the rule And then they don't And we say here's the rule Obey the rule and we're not giving them what they need to be able to obey the rule. We just keep throwing rules at them. And kids get frustrated. are like, I'm trying. I keep breaking the rule. I want to go do that thing. And we just keep giving them law. And that's not good news. It's not good news for our kids. Okay, so the law cannot change us. It won't motivate us. What it does is it exposes need. And here's the thing. So law-based living and thinking is pervasive in Christian circles. I just want to be upfront about this. It's why we oftentimes feel fatigued. We're tired of trying to measure up. We struggle to read our Bibles because we don't see how it's good news. It just seems like a list of rules and to-do's. We hear, abstain from sexual immorality. We hear, rejoice always. We hear, do not be anxious about anything. And we never seem to be able to do enough. And I hear this often. I need to do better. I'm trying hard but I hear I should dot 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 when you find yourself saying these things I want you to almost like feel a slap in the face that's not what you want that's not good news you got to preach to yourself it's not about you doing better It's about you looking at Jesus and see how he has done better for you. The law sucks the life out of us. It causes us to be marked and to be dogged by discouragement and resentment and bitterness. The law has a good purpose. It is to expose our inability and then to point us to the one who, who resolves our inability, who was able on our behalf. The law exposes our need and points us to Jesus. So the Bible never says, this is how you're failing, and then says, this is how you fix yourself. But this is how we oftentimes think in the Christian life, right? The Christian life is not self-improvement. I've said this over and over in different ways already. The Christian life is not about you moving from here to here and becoming a better person. That is not what the Christian life is. The Christian life is about taking dead people and raising them to life. That's what the Christian life is about. So the Bible exposes our shortcoming and then points to Jesus who did what we are unable to do. And then, instead of saying, be like Jesus, the gospel says believe in Jesus. It doesn't say be like Jesus. We can't. It says believe in Jesus. And then through belief, you know what Jesus does? He graciously begins to make us like him. To reflect him. But he's the one that's doing that. He's the one that's forming that in us. So we've got to understand the call for us is not to be like Jesus, but to believe in jesus and then what comes out of our lives is what he produces he will produce good things but we've got to understand he is the root the gospel is the root so the strong contrast then to law is grace and we've got to understand the bible sets up this distinction there is old covenant old testament law And there is new covenant, New Testament, grace. Up until Jesus' death on the cross, there was a law-based way of operating. Blessing came through obedience. And that was a reasonable transaction that God had set up. But Jesus' death and resurrection completely changed the formula for blessing, for salvation. It became a lopsided transaction. That's what Jesus set up. A lopsided transaction. Because it was predicated on grace. It was predicated on you receiving God's favor through nothing of your own. In fact, in spite of your own sin and rebellion against God. And here's the thing. This is where grace becomes offensive for us. We can say, oh yeah, that's nice, it's good news. But all of us are going to be confronted with the offensiveness of grace at some point. You and I can do nothing to merit God's favor. We've really got to come to grips with this. You and I can do nothing, nothing to merit God's favor to make God look at us and think, I'm going to draft that person onto my team because of the way that they pray, how often they read their Bible. That's not how salvation works. Jesus does it all. That's offensive to us. It should be offensive to us because we bring nothing to the table. Blessing is freely given came across a number of these uh, a number of quotes here i want to read these quotes it's from a book called law and gospel grace it turns out is fundamentally unfair anybody like fairness it's a pretty common feeling my wife is shaking her head yes she feels strongly about fairness grace it turns out is fundamentally unfair And therefore offensive. It makes no allowance for what we feel we or anyone else are owed. It goes on, it says, a pure gift upsets the balances of power. Right? So we oftentimes think like, and maybe kids, like they get a gift and then it's like, write a thank you note. Right? When a gift is given, then we think, how can we return? that gift, but this is saying a pure gift, unreturnable, a pure gift upsets the balances of power. Unconditional love is so threatening to sinful men and women and the precious hierarchies they create that the one time it was made fully manifest in history, we killed it. We preach unconditional love a lot here, right? but it's good for us to think about this is, this is the result of unconditional love. It is offensive. The reality of God's grace is so radical that we often find ourselves trying to domesticate it. Our tit-for-tat programming is so strong that it tends to hijack the beauty of grace and instead position it conditionally. Grace is a reality that is beautiful for sure, but it is also offensive to us. But the more you sit in grace, the more you receive it, the more you rest in it, the more it becomes the narrative of your life, the more beautiful it will become. And that offensiveness, you'll learn to be able to let it go. Trusting in Jesus, seeing the goodness that's found in him. So what we're going to do in this sermon series is bounce around different parts of the Bible, some well-known, others lesser-known. But we're going to see how it is we wrongly read the Bible, how we read law oftentimes. But then we'll also, more importantly, look at how to read text through the lens of grace. Grace to see how the law points us to Jesus, how it's trying to strip us down, expose our inability, and then say, Jesus is what you're looking for, and get us to Him. And in this, we'll be confronted with how the Bible is teeming, filled with good news. And hopefully, we'll all be encouraged and equipped to better read our Bibles in a way That the beauty of grace will make this story come alive for us in ways it never has before. But here's the thing. We all know that the Bible, if, if you spent any time in the Bible, you know that the Bible is filled with instructions. It's filled with commands. Our struggle is we feel incapable of fulfilling them, which we are. But what we oftentimes overlook is the fact that We're not responsible to form these realities in ourselves. Grace forms us. We're not formed by law-keeping. Jesus intends to form us by his grace. Our effort is put into believing in Jesus. He then begins to shape and mold us in ways that display his grace, that show his goodness despite the fact that we still live in our sinful flesh. All right, we end our sermons here with what we call gospel application. We want you walking out of here focused on not what you need to do, but what Jesus has done for you. So one point of gospel application for us today. We all need grace equally, And it is offered to us fully. So I think the tendency is for some of us to think that at some point in the Christian life, we kind of move on from grace. We think that we develop some moral strength that allows us to uphold the many instructions and commands in the Bible. And so we kind of move away from grace a little bit. And we begin to function as law keepers or people of the law. It is not true that we move away from grace. If you've been a Christian for 40 years, you need grace just as much today as the day you first believed. And that's what is offered to us. Galatians 3 gives a really stark warning. Paul writes to the church in Galatia and he comes hard at them because they've moved on from grace. They were saved by grace and then they think they've got to turn back to the law. So this is what he says. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, begun in the Christian walk, Are you now being perfected by the flesh, by works of the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul is driving home the point that turning back to the law is dangerous. We are not saved by law-keeping. We are saved by grace. So you were saved by grace. You are being saved by grace. You will be saved by grace, not by law, only by grace. Paul's saying, "Don't turn back to the works of the law. That's not good news. Jesus' intention was to move you beyond the law, to let it show you your inability. Let it show you your need for Jesus, but then get to Jesus. That's where good news is. That's where grace is found. I want to close with this quote from Martin Luther. He says, The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done.